It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 302, Jesus Walks on Water. According to Greek mythology, Poseidon, the god of the sea, has a son named Orion. Uh, Orion was handsome, a giant, a hunter, and he had the ability to walk on water. Orion, son of Poseidon, was given the ability to walk on water. He supposedly walked on water to an island, got drunk, according to one of the accounts, and raped the princess of one of the local kingdoms. Uh, other accounts have him, you know, fighting in the the Iliad, the famous Homer's Iliad. Um, he was uh, he was the embodiment, according to the stories, of the most famous and the the perfect hunter of all time. He could kill anything until he himself is killed by a giant scorpion sent by the goddess Gaia. What does this have anything to do with the Bible, you ask? Well, Orion, the constellation in the heavens, is considered one of the primary objects in the sky according to the constellation charts. One of the tricks of astronomy is to use Orion's belt and other aspects to point uh, to the other constellations, even the North Star, Polaris or Sirius. These are the navigation stars used by sailors. So when Jesus walks on the water, there's a message beyond our limited understanding. Keep this in mind, as Jesus walks on the water to prevent chaos, reveal his glory, his identity, and his power over the elements, even uh, the understanding of sailors at the time, the understanding of you know them looking to the heavens, them looking for the stars, them looking to Orion's belt. In the last scene, Jesus multiplied food. He led a wild revival in the wilderness only days after the passing of John the Baptist. These are long, exciting days, and I don't imagine Jesus slept much at all. As they broke the bread and passed it from Jesus to the disciples to the people, they in a way tasted of the first communion. They symbolically tasted of the new covenant and participated in the fulfillment of the multiplication of bread and manna, fulfilling the type and shadow of the Old Testament manna. It's powerful. The people felt, experienced something heavenly, and tasted of the kingdom to come. I don't doubt that there was a kind of a spirit of revelation there and prophecy too, and they thought they were entering into something that was set aside for another time. It was powerful, though, and the people experienced God except one thing. At the end of the John account of Jesus multiplying bread, it said the people said he was a prophet, and they wanted to forcefully make him their king. Forcefully make him their king. He, discerning their motives, he sent the disciples away, and he went to the mountaintop to pray. And this is where we arrive. Uh, The disciples are in the boat. Jesus is on the mountaintop. The people, I, I believe, are still all in the valley, probably sleeping at this stage. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. 
All right. So basically, the disciples are in the boat. It's not moving at all. The waves were up, and there wasn't any rain, apparently, but the winds were crazy strong enough, buffeting the waves and forcing them to make no distance. It was hard work, and their limited sails didn't help them at all. Wind and waves were crazy strong, and then something happens. They're in the middle of the lake. The Sea of Galilee, you know, Galilee actually means circle. They're dead in the center of the circle. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias means vision or even navel. It's the, the center of the belly button. The center of the center is where the disciples are stuck by the wind and the waves. And this is where I believe the disciples are getting exhausted, working the oars and the sails, trying to figure things out. I imagine them looking to the heavens, trying to find Orion's head or belt to figure out their bearing and location in the lake. And instead of the constellations pointing the way, reminding them of the stupid Greek stories of Orion, the Nephilim walking on water to take advantage of humans, Jesus gives them a real, tangible, powerful, heavenly revelation. In the center of the giant lake, dead center, buffeted by wind, waves in a sea and next something they never expected veteran fishermen would probably just call it a you know a day and sail home the opposite way with the wind but jesus is about to just blow their mind matthew 14 25 shortly before dawn jesus went out to them walking on the water when the disciples saw him walking on the lake they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Jewish tradition holds at the time the spirits of the departed or ghost would terrify those at sea. You can imagine every seaport town has its stories, almost always associated with some, you know, fabulous story of a tragedy at sea, which accompanies the wandering lost spirit for eternity, dead in their sins, something like that, right? This is what the disciples are struggling with because they never expected Jesus walking on the water. And I mean, he could have done anything. He could have materialized in their boat. He could have slept through the storm, did that before, right? He could have had an angel show up in the boat on the waters or or some something surprising. Maybe another boat shows up or suddenly, you know, the storm just ends. No, Jesus decides to walk on the water. He always comes the way we don't expect it. It's his way. It's what he does. And when processing this scene, we have to understand the previous scene. Healing signs, wonders, mourning for John the Baptist, power from compassion, multiplication of food, and then the disciples' weird desire to make him king forcefully because they thought he was a prophet, not a king. And I believe this entire scene is a, is, you know, is a flow over of the multiplication scene. Desire for a king and their acknowledgement of him as a prophet, not a king. It was Peter who truly acknowledged Jesus as God when he had the multiplied catch. And we'll see. We'll see soon, I'll, and, I'll, and we'll explain that. The others don't truly get it yet. It's time for them. He tailors the miracle for the disciples. Fishermen need a miracle at sea, and they're going to get it. Now, Peter, who previously knows Jesus as God... Um, he still has just an elementary understanding uh, to build on. And, and I suspect perhaps John gets it that Jesus is God as too, uh, but others like Thomas and others 
that are following Jesus, they, they still have so many more layers of understanding. And, and while it's a little rud- rudimentary here, um, I mean, while there's thousands of layers of the knowledge of God, let's say Peter has five now. John has four. Thomas has two. Judas, zero, right? <laughs> but maybe one because he experiences miracle working power. But each layer allows for a greater foundational understanding for God to build upon. So believe it or not, this episode uh, may just be more about theology than anything else. Peter, whose faith is growing, steps into something outrageous. And we all fought Peter. We all fought Peter for the wind and the waves, but he stepped out of the boat. I got a missionary friend who speaks of this scene and has a message. It's called, Get Out of the Boat. And Peter steps in crazy faith here. Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And it's these words that are going to mean so much here. All right. Peter gets distracted by the wind and the waves, the troubles, anxieties, worries, distractions of life, and he falls in the sea. You've heard the sermon before, so let's move on. But it's what happens when he gets into the boat. It says the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. This moment, their faith just jumped two more levels. Faith increased, and foundations have increased as well. And they say he is the Son of God. No one in this boat is saying he's just a prophet, right? I don't think anyone in this boat is going to be, you know, forcibly try to make the Son of God king now. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he's not a tame lion. Mark 6.50, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That last verse, for they had not understood about the loaves, the loaves of bread, the multiplication of food. This account speaks of a theological topic we have to cover. How could their hearts be hardened after so much? He said, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. How could they not understand? We finished this episode with this kind of this theme, this topic. And unfortunately, it's the failure of man, theology, and bad religion which causes such problems. It's a lack of relationship and our limitations as humans. We got to build upon a foundation of understanding every day. You know, forgive the analogy, but it's never this simple. But while Peter was a level five Christian, the others were not. Thomas, maybe two and a half. You know, what did I say? Two before, you know, Judas, one, maybe. And it, it says they all now say he's the son of God. But I don't think they actually all get it though they just said it, because when we get to Caesarea Philippi, when it appears only Peter gets it at that moment, there's others that are actually saying he's someone else. There's an interesting cloud, cloudiness, 
to the minds of the disciples. They seem to get things, they forget them, and they get them again. Uh, and we'll see that, especially when Jesus is crucified. You know, Peter denies him. He's out of fear. They didn't, not that he doesn't realize he's the son of God, but what do you do when you're the son of God all of a sudden is on a cross and you don't get it? You know, their their hearts were shattered. And I'm afraid this is all too common for Christians today. Not just the wind and the waves, you know, the adversities of life, but it's the doubting of who God is himself. It's the foundation um, of our theology. You know, so back to the theology of the scene. Jesus performs an insane miracle multiplying food, and it has three or more meetings. All of them point to him. The most important was that he was the bread of life. He was the bread. And the key to all this, he is God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Messiah. It's the revelation of his identity. He's not a prophet. He is God. There's never more, this is never more apparent than in John 12, 28, when Jesus, this is a, a totally different scene, but it, but this is such a perfect illustration of foundations of understanding uh, and the importance of knowing who God is. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name, Jesus shouts. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. One thing happened. God spoke. The relational individuals, those who know God, heard his voice. John knew his voice. He wrote this down. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The spiritual thought they heard an angel. The secular excused it as thunder. One thing happened, but there was three interpretations. One over-spiritualized it, one dismissed it with science or something they understood. But those who knew God, they heard his voice, even documented it. It's col colored lenses or spiritual conditions um, or a spiritual prescription, which perverts what actually happens to people as they process it in their minds. Put it this way. Their mental programming was set to understand it in a certain way, and that's what they got out of it. If they didn't know God's voice before this scene, then they didn't recognize it now. Now, this is where it gets scary in our lives. Here's a slew of examples. They should hit hard with some of you because it, it has with me. Take these home and chew on them. The disciples are looking up to Orion for their positioning. And they're sailors by nature. No one has ever seen a man on water. What do you expect? A ghost. No, it was God. How about deliverance? We lived in Pacific Northwest, and it seemed like everyone was depressed one way or the other. The world says to treat it with antipresence. This is what the world does. But the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. How about healing? You need a major healing. In fact, you remember a time when a friend told you God healed them. You said it was medicine or a diet change, and you discounted the fact that God healed them. Well, 
what do you do now if you need a miracle? By nature, you're going to go to um, medicine or the thing that you thought was correct. But if the only answer is God, you've got to rework the way you think things. You hardened your heart to the miracle that happened to someone else. Repent of that and pray to God so he can heal you. Jesus is your healing. Take take Simon the sorcerer in, in Acts chapter 8. All he knew was that he made a living on spiritual power. And Peter came to town with the Holy Spirit. He asked to buy the Holy Spirit. This was his world, and it was what he knew. And he tried to buy the Holy Ghost. Peter rebuked him quickly, but not as sharp as he did Ananias and Sapphira, for he was a new believer. The danger of this scene is we can learn that we can misinterpret a miracle. And whatever we fail to understand as a signpost to God, we discount like they did. A prophet has come to us. They think a human is involved and they miss this is a touch from heaven. It was God in the flesh. They discount what God is doing in their midst. They miss it. And when revival breaks out in our midst, don't miss it. When thousands of teenagers and young adults go to Asbury College just to pray spontaneous for weeks, it's a move of God. There's no doubt about it. Don't discount it, despite all the craziness of what the world says and how unusual it is. God has moved in a fresh way. Why else would teenagers do nothing else but pray and worship? Don't discount it. We have to up our relationship of faith, our understanding of God to walk in true, authentic faith. You want to walk on water? <laughs> Spend time with God, His Word, and know Him like you have known nothing else in the world. Love Him, believe in Him, and you will step out of the boat. And when the wind and the waves of this world makes it feel like you're going absolutely nowhere, stuck in the middle of the middle of the middle of the lake, don't worry. He is about to walk by in his glory. Look his way. Just turn your head. And we're all going to step out of this boat together. Let's do it together as a church. Let's move in power and walk on water in purity, power, and glory with our Father. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to check out the website, messagetokings.com, uh, or if you want to chat or connect with us, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.